please take out your Bibles and turn in your Old Testaments to Ezra. This morning we are in Ezra, chapters 7 and 8. We won't finish Ezra this morning, but we are getting towards the end of its 10-chapter book. And I want to do a brief reminder of the book of Ezra in general. What is it about and why is it useful for us still today? Uh, Ezra it divides fairly neatly into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 are the story of God rebuilding his temple in Israel. Parts, part 2, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, which is where we find ourselves, is primarily concerned with God rebuilding his people. So the rebuilding of his temple and the rebuilding of his people. And Ezra concerns God's people after exile. They were sent into exile by the Lord for 70 years into Babylon because of the wickedness of the kings of Israel, especially Manasseh. We read about this in 2 Kings. But it's not the first time God's people have gone to exile. It's not. Genesis 3 is the first time we read about that. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden into exile for disobeying his law. And again, God's people are in Egypt in exile, and they're called out of that exile. And even in the New Testament, it talks about us, the church, in exile as aliens and sojourners. So exile means a lot to us as Christians, and we want to understand the truths that God has been teaching us throughout the entirety of his scripture as he deals with his people. But here in Ezra, it's after exile. They're called out of exile after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and they're granted through the kindness of the kings of Persia, Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes and the rest, permission to return. And so we're reading the story of their return, and it wasn't all at once. This was a bit of a surprise to me as I studied Ezra. I imagined it kind of happening as a singular event. It's actually over a couple hundred years. They go back in waves, and they go, and there's opposition, and there's struggles, and there's distress, and there's no altar, there's no temple. There's problems. And so we're reading about what happens as God restores, reforms, and rebuilds his holy city, his holy temple, and his holy people. And we've talked a little bit about why Ezra uh, maybe seems so symbolically or figuratively important for us. In the Old Testament, when you read about God's people through these different epochs of time, when you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, sovereign over a great creation and given authority to tend that garden, or when you think about David in his kingship over Israel, I think these especially typify our future state. Sovereign king, David is called a man after God's own heart. They're a sovereign from any foreign powers, and they rule themselves geographically, politically, and spiritually. So there's much that we can see in that that we look forward to someday when we have our Lord on his throne in heaven and in earth. And yet Ezra gives us a hint about our time, the church age, because the Israelites are, yes, granted freedom from the Babylonian captivity and allowed to return home to Israel, but they're still under foreign rule. It's because of the permission of the Persian kings that they're even allowed to return. And when they go, they don't really get a rule themselves. It's primarily permission to return for religious and spiritual reasons. That's why we find ourselves, the church, so greatly comforted 
by this period of Israel's history because it reminds us of us and our time here on earth. And as the altar was rebuilt in Ezra chapter 3, eventually the temple was rebuilt. And eventually we're going to see that the people themselves are rebuilt. Last time that I was in front of you, we went through Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And the three points I made were this Ezra, because it says it gives his lineage, right? Ezra of so forth and so forth, begotten this way and that way. It says this Ezra went up to Babylon. So we talked about this Ezra. And it says that he went up to Babylon by the hand of the Lord. We talk about the hand of the Lord. And then we talked about observance, because after this Ezra went up to Israel, it says that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes. So here we are in the passage just after. You can think of Ezra 7, 1 through 10, our last passage in Ezra, as an index of the rest of Ezra. Because actually, when we get to verse 11, he hasn't gone there yet. Now we're going to read how he got there, how the Lord provided, and what happened once he got there. So Ezra 7, 1 through 10 are a bit of an introduction to our passage. Our theme for this morning, as it's Ezra chapter 7 and 8, is this, the Lord beautifies his church. The Lord beautifies his church. We're going to address our passage under the following three headings. The Lord's sacrifice, the Lord's servant, and the Lord's vessels. The Lord beautifies his church. Point one, the Lord's sacrifice. Look at 11 through 28. I'm going to do a bit of a paraphrase because we have too many verses for me to read all of them this morning. And we see verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. This is the sixth letter that we've dealt with in Ezra. For those that have been here the entire time or that you can recall, the very opening of Ezra is a proclamation of Cyrus. And then later... We have a letter, I say, from the tattlers. There's tattlers saying, hey, these Israelites are over here rebuilding. You better do something, king. They write a letter back to Persia, the locals, the Samaritans that did not like what the Israelites were doing. And then the king writes a letter back saying, hey, you better stop. And then later, when they are um, emboldened by the prophets, if you remember, we went through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and they were given courage, and they started the building project again. Then Tatanai, a tattler, sends yet another letter back. But this time, he allows the Israelites to speak for themselves in his letter, and the king relents, and we have the decree of Darius. Here now, we have our sixth letter. This one is from Artaxerxes, and this letter he gives to Ezra. It's when Ezra is in Babylon. Ezra, the priest and the scholar and scribe, is in Babylon, about to make his journey home, and Artaxerxes writes a letter and hands it to Ezra. The temple now has been completed for over 60 years, stone by stone on its foundation, the altar in its proper place, as we read in Ezra chapter th uh, 3. And so now the Lord, so kind and gracious to his people that he gave them a hill and a city and an altar and a temple, is going to give them even more. And so what does he do? He sends Ezra back with this letter. And in the letter he says this. This is my paraphrase because I'm not reading all of it, but you can try to follow through 
um, and you'll see kind of the main things that I'm addressing here. This is essentially what the letter says. Any Israelites or priests or Levites may freely go back to Jerusalem with Ezra. When you go, travel with my seven counselors. Ask around when you get there and make sure, Ezra, that your laws are being followed. Check in, Ezra, and make sure that they're obeying God's law. Take here silver and gold that the king freely gives to your God. Buy bulls, rams, lambs, grain offerings, drink offerings, and offer them on the altar on the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. This King Artaxerxes is saying this. And then he says this, somewhere around verse 18, do what you think is best with the rest of the silver and gold. What you think is best with the surplus that I, the king, give to you, Ezra, and the people journeying with you. Whatever seems good to you. Take also back the vessels for the service of the house of your God and deliver it to him. And if you need anything else, it says in 19, and whatever else in, sorry, in 20, and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls for you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Anything else that you might need, take it from my treasury. And then insert it into this letter, Artaxerxes give direction to the treasurers there in the province beyond the river. If you remember, the province beyond the river is Jerusalem. So the king of Persia from Babylon or one of his cities near Babylon says, hey, treasurers over there, my remote bankers, I give you this instruction. Whatever Ezra requires of you, do it. Whatever he requires of you. Up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 600 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine, 600 gallons of oil, and as much salt as they want. And further, you may not tax any of the servants of God, the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, or temple servants, or any other servants. This is the instructions that Artaxerxes gives to Ezra. Here's the things he wants Ezra to do. Here's the things that he wants his local treasurers to do. And then at the end of the letter, verses 25 and 26, he commissions Ezra. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom, the wisdom of God, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, I don't know, I imagine him holding some scrolls at that point, but perhaps he's just talking about that you understand the wisdom of your God. According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. This is the letter that the king Artaxerxes, no true follower of the Lord of Jerusalem. If you remember, this isn't the first time one of the kings has said, go make sacrifice for me. These kings were not monotheistic. They didn't believe in the one true God. They believed in lots of gods. So the kings wanted to sort of bet on black and red. They wanted to cover their bases, like go, hey, put some bulls on the altar for me while you're at it. So they were not necessarily faithful, yet the Lord worked through them anyways. And he provided 
for Ezra and God's people. And he provides through a foreign king. And why should he, by the way? If you recall, and I explained earlier, there's been lots of back and forth letter writing. The king in Persia really has no reason to favor the Israelites. They were called in Ezra 3 or 4, um, hey, these used to be a mighty people. They had amazing kings, and they ruled themselves, and they conquered their neighbors. Are you sure you want to let that people rise up again? There's no real reason for the Persian kings to be so kind and gracious to the Israelites, and yet they are. It's because the king of kings is kind to his people, and he's sovereign, even over Artaxerxes, even over Nebuchadnezzar, all of them. The Lord is sovereign over them, and he's kind. And look what he does. He provides for them. And what does he provide to Ezra and his people? Permission to go back to Jerusalem. You may go. Oh, permission to go. And then he gives them money to buy sacrifices. And money in such surplus that they could do whatever they thought was best with it. And things like wine and wheat and oil and salt. Why those things? And authority. Ezra leaves with authority in his hand. He's given authority to go back to Jerusalem and rule according to God's laws. And the Lord provides this for Ezra and all of his people. The Lord gives to God's people the things the Lord requires of God's people. Everything that the Lord requires of God's people, he has given to them. Yes, his law required sacrifices, right? And those sacrifices required an altar. And that altar required a temple. And that temple required a hill. And that hill needed a city. And it needed to be filled with people. And the Lord has provided all of those things. He lets them first return from exile. It says that he provides the very timber and stones to build the temple. And now he even provides the animals that he requires for sacrifice. The Lord requires sacrifice, and he provides them through Artaxerxes. Go buy bulls and lambs and uh, rams. The Lord provides even the things that he requires of sacrifice. What should this make you think of? Possibly first, if you could turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, the binding of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. Let's read together 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his son and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Do you see that what the Lord requires of you, the Lord provides even the very sacrifice, even the very sacrifice. I admit to you with no shame that I've had a pretty stressful week and this sermon got the best of me and I begged the Lord for help. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I'm stressed and I'm busy. And the Lord brought to my mind, I'm giving you everything you need, even the association with the binding of Isaac. And I just wept to think that even this sermon is a gift from the Lord. He has provided everything that we need, even the very sacrifice. And Ezra and his people returning from Israel, uh, from exile, are given the gift of the things that the Lord requires of them via money to buy the animals, via authority to return and to hold God's law. God provides for himself the sacrifice and even wine and wheat and oil and salt. Does that relate to you at all? We who were once not a people, a sacrifice was required to make atonement for our sins. And the Lord, what did he do? He provided for himself the sacrifice, just like he provides for Ezra and the Israelites returning. He provides it for himself. And who was the sacrifice? Something so much greater than a spotless lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He paid it all. That's why John the Baptist says what? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is what the Lord provides. What else has he provided? The wine for the cup, 600 gallons of it to Ezra. And the wheat for the bread, 600 bushels of wheat. The wine and the bread and the oil that consecrates in the baptismal waters of Jesus Christ and the salt that seasons without measuring how much. And why? Because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. See how gracious our Lord is that he provides everything, everything that we need. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. All of it. A day set apart to meet and worship the Lord. He provides that. 
sermons, songs, prayers, communion, baptism, the communion of the saints, all of that comes from our good God, from the hand of our good God. What a gracious Lord we serve, that we who can bring nothing are given everything. We are given everything. Even our very hearts are set against God. And he gives us new ones. He gives us new ones. Even his very spirit he gives us to make us alive and to help us mortify sin in our life. By the spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, it says in Romans 8. All of these things are gifts from God, the Lord's sacrifice. And all of it relies on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. This is our Lord's sacrifice, that he provides everything. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And what is Ezra's response to this wonderful, wonderful letter from Artaxerxes? Listen to what he says in verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord. This is an aside from Ezra. Quotes done, letter over, Ezra inserts commentary. And, and maybe you think, what, what's so big of a deal about this letter? There's wine and there's wheat and there's money. Like, it, it feels a little, I don't know, it just feels like something a notary might have written. Ezra sees what the Lord is providing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. To do what? To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. Remember Daniel in front of Nebuchadnezzar trying to interpret the dream? What do you think it must be like for an Israelite in captivity to face a pagan king? Ezra says, Lord, you extended your love to me in front of the king and before even his mighty officers. And what do I do? Because of that, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. There is the Christian's reasonable service right there. Give thanks to the Lord and take courage in him. Because the Lord has provided all. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Praise be to God and amen. Point to the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant. Well, as soon as we get into chapter 8, we're in genealogy. Oh like reading the genealogy. I don't want to preach on the genealogies particularly. Let's skip over the genealogies. Ah, no, let's not do that because there's something so important in this one, in all of them. But we're going to make a note here. Ezra takes the time before he goes to document in his writing, here's who came with me. In just about verse 2, we see a name pop out of the sons of David. Some of the sons of David are going up with, Israel, with Ezra to Israel. The Davidic covenant is still intact. We who broke covenant with the Lord and were sent to Babylon, we who have not upheld our end of the works that the Lord hath provided, but he is faithful and he has kept his covenant with David. And David's name is here for a reason. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. What is this covenant that has not been broken? Because the Lord doesn't break his promises. 
the Lord's covenant with David, it says in my Bible, uh, 2 Samuel 7. And I'm going to skip to verse 9. And he says this, starting at the second part of this, verse 9. This is the Lord to David. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. What is the last enemy to be defeated? Death. Someday we'll have rest even from death. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers. When you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon builds the temple. Solomon dies. Does Jesus build a temple? Yes, he is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple, which is the church. And this kingdom will never perish. Not even the gates of hell can stand against it. And it is forever. And he says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put away from before you. Think of federal headship, the Lord Jesus Christ as federal head of the church. Even when the church commits sin, he will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is what is within the context of, of the sons of David, as Ezra lists the genealogy. The Lord provides the sacrifice, and the Lord's servant comes with us. The Lord's very servant. And it's, it's worth maybe just touching briefly on David's response to this covenant. In verse 19, he says, this might have been, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord. David already recognizing this is beyond simply for the Israelites. This is instruction for mankind. Later in verse 24, he says, And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever forever, forever. And then he says in verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever. You've established yourself over his, your people forever. Your name will be magnified forever. Verse 28, this might be a memory verse in hiding here. Verse 28, he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Praise be to God that as Ezra's returning, the sons of David return with them because God is faithful. It's he, Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. It's he who goes up with Ezra. He is the one promised. This is the Lamb of God. The Lord's sacrifice is also the Lord's servant. It is he, the king that has been set on Zion, the holy hill, as it says in Psalm 2. 
the one who has the nations as his heritage, even you, King Artaxerxes, are my inheritance. He, the son who rules king, the very wisdom of God, as Artaxerxes says, Ezra has in his hand, whom all things have been provided to, is also the servant of mankind. The Lord's servant is also the son of David. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do not be shy to find Jesus, maybe on every page even. Even in this list of travelers, we see the Lord's servant shining true. What a great comfort this would have been to Ezra, who this pagan king the Lord just used to provide even the sacrifices necessary to make atonement for their sins, and yet the Lord himself goes with them. The sons of David come. And then in brief, verse 15 through 20, Ezra gathers the people that are going to make the journey with him by the river Ahava, which this is the river probably in Psalm 137, by the way, when they're saying in exile, how can we sing the Lord's song by the rivers of Babylon? Here's the river. So before they have gone, he musters the people together and takes assessment, and he finds something lacking. What does he find lacking? There's no Levites. There's no temple servants. So the Lord's servant the very Jesus Christ is going with them, and yet, where are the people? Here are a few comments that Matthew Henry makes here. Priests there were, but no Levites. Where were they? And supposedly, there would have been synagogues in Babylon to worship the Lord. And this is where the Levites would have prayed, preached, and kept Sabbaths. But now that Jerusalem was open, they should have much preferred to go back. But they didn't. And so Ebra, Ezra realized the king himself has done more at this point than these Levites. The kings of the pagans have helped us to rebuild the temple and send us even money. Come on, Levites, let's go already. They've done their part. The Levites haven't done theirs. I've got money, but no servants. What should I do? Ezra takes 11 men and says, go back. And he says, go to Edo. And the... He's the leading man at the place of Casaphia. We know from historical accounts that Casaphia was a Levite college on the road to silver. I don't know why, but that's an interesting side note. So he says, go to the Levite college in Babylon and get me some Levites. So these trusted men go, and even though the warning was short, they are able to muster some servants of the Lord. So the Lord's servant, the shepherd of his people goes, and even though they were stubborn or lazy or reluctant or afraid or who knows what, the Lord even provides the servants to serve in his temple. The Lord, gracious, kind, just, and good, provides everything that his church needs. Everything. The Lord is beautifying his church through this, isn't he? Through his sacrifice, through his service to us. And so we come to our third point, the Lord's vessels. The Lord's vessels, which takes up somewhere around 21 to the end of the chapter. But briefly, Ezra prays for courage. Ezra prays for courage, first thing he does. And he knows that the journey is perilous. We know, because it says later in verse 31, once they get there, the hand of our God was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes. Oh, I can't wait to meet Ezra someday and ask him what happened. 
I can't wait, but we don't know. But the Lord's hand delivered them. Not King Artaxerxes, because look at what Ezra says. This very personal note here. I prayed to God to protect us. Why? I was ashamed to ask the king for help. I was ashamed to ask Artaxerxes. I don't because he'd done so much. Well, he says it this way. I didn't want to ask him for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us because I had told him already. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra didn't want to put the Lord to the test by appealing to the king for protection. He trusted the Lord. He did not feel right to do such a thing. And so he goes up, him and his people, and make the journey. And prior to doing that, they do a few things. He sets aside 12 priests. He takes 12 priests. And he gives them the silver and gold and the vessels. In verse 28, he says, you are holy to the Lord. This is to the 12 priests. And the vessels are holy. And the silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And so he gives them the silver and the gold and the vessels to the 12 trusted priests to protect it while they make their journey out of Egypt, out of Babylon, to get back to Israel. And this is a four-month journey that they make, a four-month journey by foot. Not 40 years this time, four months how kind the Lord is. Four months journey and he protects them along the way. No confusion this time. He leads them straight home. He leads them straight home. And once they arrive, what happens? The silver and the gold is all weighed and measured and everything is weighed perfectly and it's turned over to the temple keepers. The Lord ensured that everything he required for the temple was returned safely. All of the silver, gold, and vessels were protected by 12 trusted priests and those things made the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem protected by the hand of God, our good God, our heavenly father, our Lord. And they were weighed and counted perfectly. So we know the temple, well, the temple refers to the church and it refers to Jesus Christ and it refers to us. All of those things, uh-huh. But on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, we know about that. And the 12 priests, perhaps you think of the 12 tribes of Israel, or the 12 disciples? Is this a reminder here that there's, the Lord provides shepherds and overseers to minister to his church? It is indeed a reminder of that. And what about the gold and silver and vessels? What is this a reminder of? Those of you may recall that when we went through Ezra chapter 2 and the very silver and gold vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen way back when were being returned we made a few observations. We'll touch on those again briefly. On gold, the Bible makes 425 different references to gold, which is a paradox a bit because something so rare and difficult to obtain is talked about so frequently. Its primary quality is its value, not first its usefulness. I think that's an interesting observation. It's also valued for its permanence and durability. Possession of gold is what marks Abraham's wealth and Joseph and Xerxes and Mordecai. Crowns are made of gold. Gold is one of the gifts laid at infant Jesus' feet at his crib. 
the head of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes, the one that has feet made of iron mixed with clay and legs of bronze and torso of silver has a head made of gold. It's why Nebuchadnezzar thought his kingdom would last forever, because the head was him. Ah, I'm good. I will last forever. I am of utmost value. Gold indicates value and permanence. Silver, some of the same things, it's often mentioned alongside gold. Joseph is sold for silver. Christ is betrayed for silver. The vessels of the house of the Lord are made with silver and with gold. And these very things are being returned to the house of the Lord, guarded and protected by 12 trusted priests. The Lord didn't forget the precious treasured vessels that were to be in his house. Why harp on it? 2 Timothy 2.21 is helpful. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he, not it, he, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Well, we can't cleanse ourselves, but we know that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us and we can be vessels for honorable use. The temple vessels made of the most valuable metals, those vessels point us to us. They point us to us, don't they? We are the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he bought us with the price far greater than gold and silver. He purchased us with his blood. Even vessels of clay can be made like gold and silver because we've been adopted as sons and daughters and are the great ransom of Christ. He paid for us with this blood, cares for us as if we have eternal value because we do in him. We get to be made like him, for him, and by him. These are the vessels of the Lord. And the vessels get returned to the temple, which is Christ. Ezekiel 43, 7 says, I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Well, the temple tore down, and that's where the presence of the Lord was. What does that mean? Because he does not dwell in a temple made by hands, does he? Zechariah says, I come, and I will dwell in your midst. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How can it be? The Lord dwells in the temple only. Fire by day and smoke by, smoke by day and fire by night. What do you mean among us? Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, speaking about the temple of his body. The vessels, the treasures of the Lord get returned to the Lord. The vessels of the Lord get returned to the Lord. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, builds up his church, and we get a wonderful reminder of that here in Ezra. Ezra, because of the kindness of the letter of Artaxerxes, brings the silver and the gold and carefully returns it. See? how well the Lord provides everything. And the Lord beautifies his temple with us. He beautifies his temple with us. What a gracious Lord. What a gracious God indeed. Turn to Ephesians 5, which has been in Pastor Nate's mind for the entire sermon, I bet. Uh, Ezra, uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives. Brad, husbands, love your wives. When we're talking about the temple. We're talking about the Lord's sacrifice, the Lord's servant, and the Lord's vessels. We're talking about the Lord beautifying his church. That's what it says in Ezra 7. He says, 
God put this into the mind of Artaxerxes to beautify his temple. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. The Lord Jesus Christ washes the church to present the church to himself, a beautiful church. In the ESV, it says the church, he presents the church to himself in splendor. The NIV says, presents her to himself as a radiant church. KJV says that he might present it to himself as a glorious church. NASB says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. They're all right. The church is glorious and it's beautiful. And that's what's on Ezra's mind when he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this, this what? That he's providing the very sacrifices we need into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. So what? So we who were once far off are in Christ, like living stones, which he builds his church with. And in Christ, we're also like living sacrifices with which he builds the church. And in Christ, we are the very vessels of the church, of silver and gold, beautifying the church. The very things the Lord requires of his people, he provides the lamb, the supper, the servants, the sermon, the silver, the gold, even new hearts. Even new hearts come from him to replace our hearts of stone. The Lord beautifies his church, and the Lord beautifies his church first and foremost with himself. With himself. Hebrews 1 says it this way, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Ezra says, you put this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. In Ephesians, it says that he cleanses the church to present the church to himself in splendor, radiant, glorious in her glory. And in Hebrews, we see Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Our Lord beautifies his church with himself, especially and primarily, and provides everything we need. What a good shepherd. What a good prophet, priest, and king is he. We who serve in his church, we who he uses to beautify his church, he does as the servant as the lamb and the Lord. With his sacrifice as a servant, he redeems his chosen vessels and provides abundantly beyond anything we could imagine all of the things we need. Amen and amen to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his hand 
everything that we need is provided, even and especially himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of your spirit, we thank you, Lord. We thank you because everything we have is such a gift from you. Every good and perfect thing comes from you, Father. You work all things together for your people. We who are needy and lost and wandering like sheep, like wanderers in the desert, Lord, we trust in you. We trust in you because we're desperate if we don't have you, Lord. All the things that we need are gifts from you. Oh, Lord, remind us. Oh, Lord, provide for us. Oh, Lord, forgive us when we forget these truths, Lord. You are such a beautiful trust and true God and glorious, Lord, glorious and beautiful and radiant. Oh, may we see you face to face, Lord, and soon. Until then, may we, like Ezra, take courage, Lord, take courage for these days. Say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the servant, the Lord and God of all. Amen.